So I am pleased to introduce you all to today's speaker, Dr. Heike Sederoff. My first interaction with Heike was over Skype about three years ago. I was looking to get some lab experience while I figured out what to do next with my life. And while we were talking, she was telling me about all the different projects going on in her lab. And at the very end, she was like, oh, yeah, you should apply to the Ph.D. program here and the Ad Biofuse Fellowship. Needless to say, I did both, and here I am, three years later, incredibly grateful to study under the guidance of Dr. Sederoff, because if you didn't know, she's the person to know. She's an amazing mentor and researcher. Heike is originally from Germany, where she received her bachelor's in chemistry and biochemistry and a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Göttingen. She completed a postdoc in Australia focusing on metabolic regulation of plant bacterial symbiotic nitrogen fixation, and a second postdoc with NASA focused on metabolic regulation of gravity-induced differential cell elongation. Since then, she's been a professor in the plant and microbial biology department with a general focus on metabolic engineering. She also serves as a chair of the systems and synthetic biology cluster and is a university faculty scholar. Remember how I mentioned she was an amazing researcher and mentor? Just last year, she was one of the five faculty members to receive the Outstanding Research Award, the university's top award for those who show excellence in the field and mentor research faculty. Currently, some, and I do mean just some because there's plenty more, of her research interests include understanding plant systemic signaling, controlling microbiome interactions, metabolic engineering to increase oilseed crop yield, and the reason why we're all here today, which is to hear about these cool, self-powering greenhouses. See, I told you she was the person to know, right? So without further ado, I will pass it on to Dr. Sederoff. Wow, thank you, Delicia. I don't know how I can ever repay that. Well, maybe it was a PhD one day, huh? <laughs> um, Hello, everybody. Let me see. I, I want to start and share my screen. Can I get some feedback? What do you see? Do you see um, Matt Damon and his Martian greenhouse? Yes. Good. Okay. I just always wanted to have a picture with him. So that's why you have this picture. But it does introduce the topic today um, <clears throat> very well. Because um, I, assume, I think it's the most. Um, the widest known, best known greenhouse. It's not on earth, so that's a little issue here, but overall um, certainly famous. And it points to the, to the question I, I want to discuss uh, later on in my, my talk, which is what do we need to, to breed or engineer crops for, for future or current greenhouse situations? And maybe what should have Matt done to, to um, well, he survived, so that's all he needed. But what could he have done to, to prevent the total loss when his greenhouse exploded, for those who've seen the movie? So um, the topic today is, um, uh, the, is really, um, I changed the title a little bit, Engineered Biology in Engineered Environments. And I specifically want to talk about greenhouses. This is a greenhouse system in the Netherlands. It is an area where 80% of the land is covered in greenhouses for production of mostly fruit, vegetables, and, and uh, ornamentals. And it, it looks like a different maybe Martian landscape. 
The, um, I want to talk about two topics today. One thing is I want to introduce a new greenhouse system that we've been working on with a different cluster, with the carbon electronics cluster here at NC State uh, and other people, the, the Phytotron and, and um, the engineering, uh, the civil engineering group. Um, and I want to talk about, so these new kinds of greenhouses we have developed. And then the second thing is really to think about in new in greenhouses, what kind of how does genetic engineering or breeding differ, differ from um, what we do for field crops? So those are the two things I want to touch on. So first of all, um, and this is everybody knows it, I just want to, to um, kind of remind you of how important actually greenhouses could be. And so um, you all know greenhouses really can be built anywhere from the desert, as you see on the bottom left, to, the, to, the, to northern Canada or any northern region where you have a lot of ice and snow and cold. So temperature protection um, and conserves water and, and, um, and nutrients. The overall, the key is that with uh, greenhouses, you can essentially grow crops outside of their natural growth regions, their climate zones, their adapted zones uh, year round. So you don't have a winter crop and a summer crop or fall and spring. You can grow the same crop if you want to, the same crop year round. And that enormously increases their production. For tomatoes, productivity in greenhouses is more than 20 fold above field. And that means that on one acre greenhouse space, we can grow the same amount as on 20 acres of field space in, in a specific climate. So we could save a lot of land with, with greenhouse production. And the majority, it's much higher percentage of marketable food uh, or, or, or crops compared to, to field production, where you have a lot of damage or, or off-season production. Pest pathogens and weeds are low. You don't need herbicides. You need very little insecticide. And one of the really important issues for sustainability is really that you can, can recycle a lot of things. You, control, you can control water use because you, you limit evaporation. So you can actually grow on very unfertile land if you want to. You can recycle your nutrients, nitrogen, phosphate, or, or other minerals. So you have really an environment where you can grow theoretically any crop at any time. So why don't we have just greenhouses everywhere? The problem is that the energy demand for the space conditioning, the heating and cooling, and in some cases, supplemental light is so high that it doesn't, it's economically not feasible. It's cheaper to just throw the seed on the field and fertilize and water than to build these greenhouses and cool and heat them. In a lot of areas, greenhouses are only used for a partial time of the year. North Carolina is way too hot in the summer for greenhouses. The cooling costs are very high. So there are different intermediates, but overall the cost for the energy requirement is too high. So 
what can we do about it? So there are two general systems that have been developed in the last few years. One, one thing are fully enclosed systems or container systems, controlled environment systems, where you essentially have no sunlight. You have a container or a room. Everything is run with artificial light. It requires, because you can insulate it very well, it requires uh, less energy for heating and cooling, but the artificial light actually, even if you use LEDs, requires so much energy currently that it is economically not viable beyond microgreens and lettuce. So tomatoes are already hard to grow in there for commercial purposes because the energy, the light energy cost is too high. One alternative is the uh, that was tried is or is is in trial is to use solar energy, um, and there you have two possibilities. You can put the solar panels right on top of the greenhouse, then you essentially shade your area below, and that is not too great. You can make them movable. You also have you need more structural stability if you if you load. Um, solar panels on top of greenhouses. So it's not ideal, but it, it, it does preserve and generate uh, energy. Or you put them next to a greenhouse somewhere on the field. You see down here with the sheep, nothing much grows underneath. You can grow, um, obviously it's good for, for livestock, holding livestock, but overall you again need more land for this. So what we've been working on is kind of a, a, an integration of the needs for, of a greenhouse, of a plant, with uh, the needs for energy in a greenhouse. And uh, we call these greener houses um, because what we do, the, the key, and I'll get a little bit into details, the key here is that, um, that, the, that we use the light and split the light um, between the need for energy, solar energy, and the need for light for the plant to do photosynthesis. The, um, the team here is at NC State is Brandon O'Connor, an engineer. So most of this is the carbon electronics group. Brandon O'Connor is on, this is an NSF Infuse grant and Brandon is the PI. Um, myself and, and Carol Sarovitz from the Phytotron are the plant bio uh, PIs here. Harald um, Ade is the PI in physics. The economist is Joe DeCarolis, and we have Aram Amasian in the material sciences and chemistry from UNC Chapel Hill. So you see it's a pretty broad um, multidisciplinary team. Uh, working on trying to, to create these, what we call wavelength selective organic photovoltaic greenhouses. It's a long, long name here. So let me try and explain what essentially this is. And I don't wanna go too deep into it, but I do want you to understand enough so that, that um, you can make sense of it. So the, the key to, to these organic photovoltaics is that these are, these are, this is the chemical organic. So it's an organic molecule, organic chemistry, long carbon molecules or complex carbon molecules that can, where the electrons in these molecules can be excited by light 
and then absorbed into an, into another layer, and then replenished through a circuit. So what you see here is the you have a donor layer um, which has polymers, the electron donor. When that gets when light shines on it, it absorbs certain wavelengths and then uh, donates the electrons to the acceptor molecules here, PCBM. Don't worry about what that means. That accepts the electron and then channels it through a cathode, um, through your electric circuit. If you wanna, here it's a light bulb or you can run any or heating cooling elements. And then the electrons go back to replenish the donor layer. So that's your electric circuit. The trick with these, these organic molecules, the donor and acceptor, is that you can use different chemicals and with that create different absorption spectra. So these, these um, acceptor and donor molecules absorb different wavelengths and that's work from Wei Zhu and his postdoc Jeremy Reck, both at um, UNC Chapel Hill, they are chemists. They work on these and have designed all the um, and produced all the chemicals that we use to generate these photovoltaics. So you can see um, this is the parking structure on, on Centennial Campus. And in front of it, you have different um, semi-transparent organic photovoltaic filters. So you can see it ranges from red to blue to different shades of purple. And these different colors uh, come from different combinations of these um, organic acceptor and donor molecules. That's really all I want to show you with respect to the, um, to the panels itself, to the organic chemistry here. Um, when we look at what the plant wants, what the plant needs, what we have here is plant plants use um, light for two different purposes. I mean, all their life depends on light. And so they have one set of what's called chromophores or light absorbing uh, molecules that they use for energy. That's the chlorophylls A and B here. And you can see they absorb uh, light in the, in the purple and bluish uh, range of the visible spectrum and in the red, red part. So the reason you, a leaf looks green to you is because that's the wavelength that the leaf does not absorb. And that's what we make use of. The, the, in addition to the energy um, production or energy absorption uh, use of light, the plants also use light for sensing. So because their entire light, their life depends on what light, how much, they get when um, they have developed different sensors that are responsible for um, adjustment between day and night, for flowering time, for lots of different, everything in development you can think about um, to set the clock, the, the, um, the diurnal clock and more. So we need to make, here too, you can see there's a little dip here in what is absorbed in the, can you actually see my mouse? No? Okay. Yeah, we can see it. Okay, thank you. Um, so here the green, greenish yellowish area is really the part where the plants don't really need much. As I said, that's why they look green and yellow to you. 
So what um, what we aimed for this here is is a is a is the solar spectrum here. This is the this faint gray line is actually solar radiation over the visible spectrum. This is what's incoming um, from the sun, and you see the the absorption from the chlorophyll from the energy absorbing molecules and plants. And this is really very little, just a fraction of what the solar light provides, the solar spectrum. So what our chemists and engineers have done is they designed um, molecules, these chromophores for the uh, photovoltaics that grab the, the um, wavelengths between those or outside of what the plant needs. So here the pink is the elect one of the electron donors and the blue is the uh, wavelength, wavelength spectrum of an electron acceptor. So there's still plenty of light for the plant to use in the blue and red area. Um, and we harvest the rest of the light uh, for energy production. So, um, so much about what it is that we are trying to do. And the questions here are now, can these greenhouses or these uh, very length selective organic photovoltaics um, actually uh, really produce enough energy to run a greenhouse? Then our greenhouses, are they, if they do this, are they economically feasible? Or, and are they environmentally more sustainable? Because as you know, if it doesn't pay, it won't be built. And if it's less sustainable, we don't really need it. And then it's probably the first question, but I wanted to, for the flow of discussion, I wanted to put it later. Can crops grow productively in these greenhouses? And then how should we breed and engineer for these greener houses? Um, what, what kind of plants or what kind of changes to crops do we need um, that grow in these very different engineered environments? So I'll start with the first question. Do they produce enough energy for their demand? Are they even useful at all? This is work from Eshwar Ravishanka. He was a graduate student in, in Bren O'Connor's lab and he just graduated. He's now Dr. Ravishanka. Um, what um, Eshwa did is um, he made a really detailed dynamic energy model. So he took a standard uh, theoretical greenhouse um, and, and calculated, uh, this is what some engineers can do, all the incoming and outgoing um, energy and the requirement for heating and cooling. He mapped that to... Um, to different regions in the US. So he especially took three very different uh, climate zones. One is Phoenix, Arizona, dry and hot. One is Raleigh, North Carolina, beautiful and temperate, well, um, subtropical. And then the other one is Antigua in Wisconsin, which is cold. So this was the first uh, run through where he calculated and um, all the or modeled all the from weather data, annual weather data, and and um, and greenhouse demands, all the energy. And he distinguished here 
So you have three different uh, groups of bar graphs, Wisconsin, North Carolina, North Carolina, and Arizona. And you can um, see the, the red bar is the energy that's generated by the solar cells. Obviously, that over the year, the highest production is in Arizona in the summer, uh, where they produce more energy than they need. Um, North Carolina in the summer between April and, and September also produces a greenhouse like this, a solar powered greenhouse would produce more energy than it needs. So this could be fed into the grid for, for cooling houses and other things. But in the winter, um, the demand in Arizona would be uh, completely compensated for. In North Carolina, not really. The, the heating load is much higher than the energy produced. But the cooling load in the summer, which, which prevents most greenhouses in North Carolina to be run, would be more than uh, covered by the um, solar energy that is harvested from these greenhouses. In Wisconsin, where we have the lowest amount and the shortest time period of light, we still have fully covered greenhouse energy demand in the summer, but in the winter, uh, heating out, um, um, the heating demand is higher than, than what the solar panels can produce. When you um, look at this, this is just a summary where, where all the, um, over the entire year, the, the energy uh, required by here in green, uh, the conventional greenhouses, the energy required by the OSC, organic solar um, panel, solar cell greenhouses, and the solar energy in red in Arizona, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. You can see in Arizona that the, the energy produced by the greenhouse is almost twice as high as that what is required by the greenhouse. And compared to the conventional greenhouse, it's lower, much lower. In North Carolina, the, we, it's kind of a match. Over the year, the solar energy harvested and converted to electricity from the greenhouse is about as large here, the red bar, or a little bigger than what is needed for the greenhouse. And in Wisconsin, you need to feed in extra energy. The solar energy cannot cover for the entire amount of, of light energy, but it reduces it by 50%. So that's, or 60%, whatever it was, 46%. So that's still uh, enormous energy savings. Um, Eshwa also calculated this now worldwide and he introduced a lot more um, other factors, uh, different crops, different wavelengths, different organic photovoltaics, different chemicals. And so what you can see here, other than in the really very Northern parts, Greenland, Siberia and Northern Canada, and the South Pole, these greenhouses can actually produce some, some amount of net present value. So again, in, in, um, in productivity and in, in, in money and economic value. And the further you go to the equator, that's the higher it is. Um, now, a lot of these things really depend on the climate. You know, if you're in the desert and you can't grow anything, 
obviously it's um, the the water, the saving of the conservation of water that doesn't evaporate is probably one of the major parts. So the second question was: Are these um, economically viable, and are they are they um, more sustainable? We talked about sustainability with respect to um, water conservation, nutrient cycling and conservation, and, and reduction of pesticides. But when we look at um, other things, that's what light. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's what. Um, LCA, life cycle analysis uh, can do, we can calculate the amount of CO2 that is required and the, and, and the economic analysis did the calculation for the amount of, of tomato that is uh, can be produced at what price. And when you compare conventional greenhouses here with tomatoes grown in um, our organic photovoltaic greenhouses, the price difference on average, again, it would depend where you grow it, is about 6% more expensive. 6% is not, I mean, the economists on the team here on the group can weigh in, but I think 6% will not break this um, invention. So the, um, the other thing is when you look at CO2 equivalents, how much CO2 as uh, a global warming potential is released for the production of one kilogram of tomatoes. There, the, the, our new greenhouses are actually 36% lower than conventional greenhouses. So they need 40%, almost 40% less or 35% less CO2 to be released um, compared to, to conventional greenhouse. And most of that is simply due to, to the energy demands. So um, one of the things that um, we needed to do is we needed to see if these, um, if, if plants can even grow under these different uh, organic photovoltaics. And this is work that Melody Charles um, mostly did, and the, the biggest help here was really the Phytotron, Carol Sarowitz and her team. Uh, this is, um, this looks a little Martian and industrial, but this is actually in the basement of, of the Phytotron here at NC State, where a whole room was set up um, with uh, special lights. I don't know if Carol is on the call, but if she is, she can comment on this later. And so um, special boxes were designed to test different filters. And in these boxes, you can see they, they are supplied with continuous and, and consistent equal flow of water, nutrients. Everything was controlled in these systems. So we were able to just see what the difference in, in light in the, in the spectrum that these, these organic so, uh, photovoltaics generate is, is available. So that's what the outside looked like here. You can see the inside of one of these chambers. Everything is measured and controlled from CO2 to humidity. Um, these, these purple things are one set of, of these uh, photovoltaic filters. And then in here, the first thing we, we grew was uh, red leaf lettuce. So, um, what you can see here 
all the different, they were grown under different filters and you see all of them grow. So we didn't have anything that didn't grow at all. Uh, they look very different depending on what kind of uh, filter they were grown under. You can see some are really dark, some are bigger, some are more green here, some are, have more red. Um, this was red leaf lettuce, so it is supposed to be red. Um, and when we did the analysis, um, what you can see, I, I color coded up, this is Melody's work actually. Uh, she color coded the different filters according to their spectrum. So purple is here, the purple bar as well. So you can see here when you have this filter combination, that is here, the purple bar. This, um, this uh, red, more reddish one is here, the red bar. And the bluish one is the blue, this filter. And we had a white light control, so no filter. And what you can see is that um, there's um, essentially no difference between those filters in fresh weight, in dry weight. There's a substantial difference in photosynthesis. So how much CO2 they, they assimilate. But the interesting thing here is that this did not um, result in differences in dry weight. The dry weight is just the shoot dry weight. So maybe they grow enormous roots and we didn't see it. The important thing, and that's what the market value comes down to, is that the nutrient content of these, um, these, these lettuce varied significantly. So for example, under this purple filter, we really had a lot less carotenoids uh, compared to, to the other filters. That is really something, um, carotenoids and anthocyanins are even, even lower than that. That is an important um, nutrient aspect. These are what's called antioxidants. So something that people like to have a lot in their, um, in their food. Um, Melody also did something, um, and this is just to illustrate, um, a lot of things uh, that go on in a plant, we cannot measure directly, and we cannot do all the experiments to measure this. For example, if they are more drought tolerant or if they are, have uh, more other nutrients or how they do with nitrogen or phosphate. So in order to kind of get in and kind of screen for those changes in traits, because we know all traits are affected by these sensors, light sensors and plants. What we did is we did an, a transcriptome analysis. So essentially we took all the RNA to see which genes in these different lettuce plants were active. And what we were able to show is that the different filters really differ between nitrogen metabolism, which is important, because nitrate uptake and storage nitrate content in crops is an important benefit, or in some cases, um, um, not so beneficial nutrient. A lot of volatiles were activated um, or synthesized, at least the genes that make volatiles, which are important in things like insect resistance and uh, flowering time. So a very important um, uh, factor when you look at crop production. Um, for example, this delays bolting in lettuce. You don't want your lettuce to bolt because it gets bitter. 
Um, but in tomatoes, you want flowering to come as early as possible, so you get as many tomatoes as possible in a short time. So these aspects, even though we couldn't test for them directly in, under these filters, can be very important in uh, agronomically. So that we also are trying tomatoes now. This is um, we are actually Melody is analyzing those data right now. Uh, we did the same overall, not much difference. They grow just fine. Um, these these uh, boxes are not big enough to grow them all the way to fruit. So we only have the early stages, but uh, they look good. And we are analyzing the, the transcriptomes right now. So um, that brings me to, to the question I wanted to save some time for discussion for, but I wanted to get started on. And that is all the most of most of the breeding and and genetic engineering for crops has been done um, for land plants. We have um, all the the adaptation to environments, or has been done for field grown crops. And the question is, how will that differ when we don't? Have to engineer the plant to fit the environment, but we can modify the environment to fit the plant needs, or the, as I try to call it here, engineer for genetics by economics. We adjust the environment, so we don't need heat tolerance, drought tolerance, but what do we need to now breed or engineer the crops for? So this is essentially the the part I, I'm currently thinking about and trying to figure out where these kinds of um, engineering efforts need to go. So as I just said, here on the left, you see a, a, a field-grown tomato is exposed to, to seasonal problems, drought, heat, cold, high light, low light, weeds, uh, other pests, needs fertilizer, water. So these are all things that mostly get engineered. You know, you have uh, herbicide, uh, herbicides and insecticides. All of these, you don't need herbicides in a, in a, uh, in an, a controlled environment. So what are really the needs, um, or are there, maybe there are none, um, to, to, for crops that grow in these environments? So even though it's always really boring to have tables, this is how I tried to think about it, to look at here on the left, is what, what are the issues in an open field production versus what is the issue in, in a controlled environment? So all the things like nutrient use, uh, microbiomes effects and signaling response to fertilizers, all this fertilizer, nitrogen phosphate supplies, that when you just throw it on a field can cause um, eutrophication of rivers nearby, all of that can be completely recycled and does not have to leave the greenhouse ever. Uh, same for water, no, no drought or flooding tolerance uh, needed here because water can be completely controlled and recycled. No evaporation, everything is just controlled by the environment. Again, temperature, Heat and frost tolerance. Right now, we have a lot of frost tolerance here that we need for some plants. Um, 
no no need to to engineer or breed or select for any of that because we control it in the greenhouse. Pathogen resistance, they are very, the pathogen um, infestation in greenhouses overall is lower. Um, and you can, especially if you are in a greenhouse environment, um, Gene Rostano has worked with several uh, engineers and physicists, you can actually build sensors and what to, to monitor these pathogens much better in a greenhouse than in the field. And so you can, can go in and respond very early on and quickly to, to, to pathogen infestation. Although in greenhouses, because it's it's a it's a closed environment, these can also get out of hand. So that's that could be a major issue. Insects and herbivory, um, yeah, you you don't. That's can mostly be controlled with mechanical um, systems and herb uh, and um, weeds. We really. Um, don't have a weed problem when you're in a controlled environment and you grow everything either in in um, in uh, hydroponic systems or in soil pots. Where we do need, where differences do occur, is in light yield and yield timing and the quality of crops. As I said, when we come to when we look at the economics of greenhouses, if we solve the energy problem. Um, then the economics really come down to the quality of crops. And there um, you can sell crops for higher prices if they contain more nutrients, better nutrients, higher fibers, better protein, more protein, vitamins, what have you. So, and the overall quality is more consistent. So those are things that, that we can, we should think about breeding, but I want to also think about light because the one thing that is different from any natural environment is the light that these plants get. And even though they can, can grow just fine, one of the things I'm interested in, and I don't know if I, I will do this during my career, but is to, to think about how we can expand the ability of plants to harvest light for energy, especially the spectrum. I showed you here the top left um, the graph shows the absorption of the two major chlorophyll A and B. Those are the, the molecules that absorb uh, sunlight for energy production in plants. But that's just for land plants. When you look into other plants, other, other systems, um, in cyanobacteria and red algae, or here these, these, um, these, these, these are microbial communities in stromatolites. These are, um, these are little rocks in, in uh, Australia, Western Australia. You can find they have layers of different color here, red. You can see red and green. They use different chlorophylls. So chlorophylls, I want to go back one slide, um, can be adjusted. This, this molecule here is a generic chlorophyll and R is residues. The wavelength they absorb depends on what these, these R molecules are. And they can be modified. And you can see this is the current known spectrum of different chlorophyll chlorophylls found in um, and bacteria and, and algae. 
And so we can really, when you look here at chlorophyll A and B, that's in land plants, chlorophyll D from bacteria really has shifted much more to the red. So we could expand massively if we can, can engineer land plants to, to incorporate these different chlorophylls, could expand the, the spectrum of light that we could um, uh, incorporate. Um, I'm almost done, don't worry. <laughs> um, I already talked about this. So the other thing is uh, with these controlled environments, one of the things is, yeah, tomato, we grow tomatoes now, but what else can we grow? Can we, can we go into row crops in India? This is a greenhouse that grows corn in India. Um, when we think about where this really matters is when we think about global warming and the impacts of climate change. And with that on our agriculture, we will have massive shifts and the concern is that we will have uh, for field grown crops, large amounts of loss due to, to changes in, in environmental extremes from drought to, to flooding to, um, to, well, we can't do much about fire. But um, so in, in India, in some regions, corn can be grown or is grown in greenhouses, not as a row crop. And a, a very spectacular um, calculation was done recently. There uh, was a paper in, in PNAS that tried to, um, to estimate the, if we could or make a model to grow wheat. Wheat is the fifth largest, um, largest food uh, source, especially um, worldwide for protein and starches. And you can see this is, a production facility that would have conveyor belt system grown uh, wheat here in these um, in several in, in a ten story building. You can see here the trucks that get loaded. You can grow uh, make a system where you actually have continuous production where you start to germinate them somewhere up here, and then when they are fully mature. The, the conveyor belts bring them down or they go down here and, and are harvested and loaded. And they calculated that currently the world average yield here is in the range of, of about um, a few tons here. What is it? 3.2 is the current annual uh, wheat yield worldwide per hectare. And you can, you can go to the highest producing world record is in New Zealand, that went a little higher. But when you look at experimental or simulations and theoretical potential for wheat yield as tons per hectare per year in these, this kind of facility, um, you could get 700 fold as much, 700 times as much yield um, potential. So that is really, um, a whole different system. And then keep in mind, if you can, if you can grow 500 times as much wheat, you need one five hundredth of land for this. Land that you can use for a lot of other things, for beautiful engineered chestnuts or whatever you want. So um, a major uh, potential for producing food that is resilient against uh, global warming and changes in field production there. 
um, I couldn't help but end with the NASA. This is one of NASA's obviously for, um, very interested and far ahead of most people in, in growing crops in contained environments. This is, a, is an older model of how they want to grow it on Mars. Obviously, it's Mars. So, and with that, I want to um, introduce some of them. I, I, I forgot the, I didn't forget, I've missed the, um, the Phytotron staff and Carol Sarowitz, so I apologize for that. Um, but this work was mostly done by, by the organic and carbon electronics cluster. Now you also understand what carbon electronics is. Um, the uh, Harald Ade, this guy always, always just sneaks into pictures, but Harald Ade is a professor in, in physics. Uh, Aram Amasian is an um, engineering guy, the material science guy. Brandon O'Connor is um, in engineering. Melody was and Eshwa were the graduate students or are the graduate students who lifted a lot of the plant and, and modeling work. Wei Zhu and Jeremy Rech from UNC Chapel Hill did most of the, all of the chemistry. And then we have uh, Rhys Henry and Ronald Booth work with Brandon O'Connor in, in, no, with Harald and Brandon in um, making the photovoltaics. And Joe de Corollis is our economist in civil and uh, civil engineering with his student, Joe Collingworth. And with that, um, if you think that we have a diversity problem in this, you are totally right. But I hope this will change and more women get into natural sciences, especially engineering, physics, and chemistry, maybe in the future. Okay, that is it. With that, I will stop sharing and I would be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Heike, that was really great. Um, we'll, uh, I'll go ahead and ask people to either raise your hand if you have a question or to type your question into the chat box. Um, I'll start by reading a question that's already in the chat by Fred Gould that said, have conventional breeders in the Netherlands developed special varieties for greenhouse production? Say that again, have conventional breeders in a developed special food? Um, I have not seen any genetic engineering. I know they are working on this. Um, they, um, the, the key is um, kind of similar to what the Green Revolution tried to do, as small as possible a plant with as much as possible a, um, a yield. So for tomatoes, if you can have just one leaf and five tomatoes, that's great. Uh, so those are very similar to, to um, other plants. So reduce the amount of of non-crop biomass. So for lettuce, the leaf is the biomass we care about. But for tomatoes, you only eat the tomato, you don't eat the stem and the, the leaves. There's a tendency trying to, to go from, a lot of our crops are uh, determinate versus indeterminate, which means they, they make all the flowers and fruit at the same time and die. That's the determinant version. Indeterminate is some tomatoes that mostly you grow in your backyards if you grow tomatoes or are grown currently in greenhouses, which grow 
continuously make flowers, 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 you know, throughout the year and thereby produce food throughout the year. So those are, those are some of the things I know about. Uh, there is also a comment from John Klassen um, who said comparing yield on an area basis doesn't mean much when the systems are so different. Would you like to comment on that? I can just say he's right. <laughs> I mean, obviously, um, that's why we, I mean, we tried um, to, there's John, so maybe we can, um, you're completely right, because growing tomatoes in, in Saudi Arabia would not be possible without a greenhouse anyway. So, so a better question, a better way to put that would be, what is the right denominator? Oh, man, I wish I had my, my economists with me. I don't know. Um, I think, uh, to me, it is uh, a combination of, obviously, the economics, but um, really also food security in, in, a, in a national sense, you know, because um, if, if global warming continues to, to really impact our food supplies worldwide, then that's a value that um, you cannot directly, immediately measure with, with yeah. dollars, you know? So I, I, I'll just make this comment and, and then give it up. That what you said there, I think, is very important for all of us to remember, is that the denominator in any of those efficiencies, yields, whatever, the, uh, the, the denominator should be what we value. Right. And that may be different from country to country and right. from so the the country that may currently builds most of these kinds of greenhouses, not exactly what we are building, but has the most research funding in this is China, you know, because China really has land issues when it comes to food production. And they built enormous amount of, of greenhouses. They also built solar greenhouses, although they also have no big issue with firing coal plants to provide the, the electricity they need for greenhouses. But they, they have a feeding, they have a problem feeding their population, yeah. Okay, Jabine, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hi, Heike. Um, that was a really great talk. I just had a question regarding like nutritional content of um, produce that's grown in like a greenhouse. There was a talk that Marianne Lila gave a couple of years ago comparing wild berries um, that were grown in Alaska to ones that were cultivated on farms and how the nutritional content and antioxidant content was higher when they were grown in the wild because they had to deal with adaptations to the environment and other, other things like that. And I'm curious if, you know, growing in a greenhouse where a lot of the environmental factors can be controlled, if that affects nutritional content and if that's um, something that we have to either overcome by breeding or genetic engineering, or if that's not a concern at all. So I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. The first thing you would want to do is study why, why do the wild, uh, whatever berry it was, well, blueberry, blackberry, whatever. Why does it have a better nutritional content? And it is probably 
due to two things, environmental and genetic, <laughs> which is everything. So I think if you understand the basis of that, you can adjust the environment and the genetics in these greenhouses. So if they, for example, we know that a lot of the anthocyanins um, are activated by UV light. So you can, there's no, you can always uh, provide UV light to them. They need a, just before they they um, are market ready, you give a few days of UV light or just actually a, a short spike of UV light and it's gonna um, just be, um, uh, it, it'll induce the biosynthesis pathway. We know it's dependent on UV. So I don't know what makes it better in the wild. Maybe it's the microbiome. You can check that out. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't know what, the difference is, and that's something to study, and then you can adjust everything in the greenhouse. Thanks. Okay, there was also an interesting comment from Anne Margaret. Anne Margaret, would you feel comfortable unmuting yourself and speaking your comment? Sure, I'm here. Oh, I just read your comment. You were in Iceland. How cool. I want to go. <laughs> yes, it's like Hawaii, but cold. Um, so we were over there for Christmas tree production, but we looked at geothermal power because they have so much of it. And yeah, my comment was, I thought that, um, you know, they do homes with geothermal now and maybe heating the greenhouses, heating and cooling greenhouses where it can be used, yes, it can't, I saw the comment from Dylan that it can't be used everywhere, but, you know, if it's coming up at a constant temperature from the depth of the, at depth, then you just have to heat it a little more in the winter, depending on your crop, or it keeps your greenhouse from freezing at 55, and it would greatly help for cooling in the summer where you didn't have to Cool, maybe cool as much, or you could cool, do extra cool at night, which is what we would need. So I think if you can get geothermal, that's fantastic. You know, then then absolutely. I think any energy, any environmentally more friendly energy is fine. You know, um, if you have geothermal, yes, it would certainly be great. And then you can see how you need to supplement it. With geothermal, you may want to think about actually a real complete enclosed container so you can, I don't know enough about Iceland, the, the agriculture and climate there, but maybe fully enclosed where you even run everything just with LEDs for a lot of things that works fine. It's, it's well, a matter of economics then, you know. Right. I think that's what they were doing in Iceland, but here in, here in Raleigh, um, yeah, we produce an excess in the summer, like from your graph for, for cooling, but we would have to run air conditioners with that excess solar in like our fur greenhouses for cooling at night. And if we use geothermal, it would already be cool coming up. So um, you could use your solar to run all your other systems or, or lights if you wanted to keep data links extended in the spring and the fall. I think that would be great. Yes, if you can add other kinds of environmentally sustainable energy, perfect. 
just yeah. Because yeah. you need so much money to do that someday. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Do we have any other questions? Um, um, I actually have a question or comment. You know, you showed this thing, and um, you know, there's a lot of talk about efficiency. I was wondering. With greenhouse agriculture, you know, it takes a lot of um, upfront investment. Uh, I mean, I wonder if some of this, these equations should have something like who is going to be farming in the future? Because this is going to limit, um, especially in communities like, you know, countries like India, where a large amount of farming still happens by you know, on very small farms. Um, so greenhouse farming is going to change that demographic of who the farmers are. I was wondering if that should go into what we value. Um. Absolutely. But um, keep in mind a lot of, um, absolutely, I agree with that. But I could also see models where, where large companies invest into small plot farms because you don't have to make this big. You know, where in certain areas in India, they can produce certain um, certain products better than here because most of India would have a much better energy balance with these kinds of greenhouses. And you need a lot less land. So um, it could be almost a kind of franchise model, you know, where the farmer himself, you know, I'm just, I think that's a matter of how you, how you build those systems, yeah. you know, who pays for them, you know? So would a company like Dole um, pay the farmer for, because, the second largest after energy, the second largest um, cost in a greenhouse is manpower for maintenance and harvesting, you know, or woman power, people power. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Heike. Um, if everyone would just help me thank Heike again um, by showing your appreciation <laughs> in whatever Zoom way you can. Thank um, you all. Yes, we appreciate it. Um, we're going to officially stop colloquium and you're free to go. Heike has agreed to stay an extra five minutes or so if you have any um, additional questions or things you'd like to speak with her about. So feel free to stay on. Um, but colloquium is officially done. So join us back here next week and um, we'll have another good session for everyone. <laughs>